Amen. Amen. Thank you, Cindy. Amen. We'll invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. I need to do a survey this morning. The title of the message is Planned Obsolescence. When I came up with that title, it's based on the scripture, but I didn't realize that a lot of people have never heard that term before. How many of you have ever heard planned obsolescence? Raise your hand. What that means is that a product comes out and they don't plan for it to last forever. Believe it or not, they don't really want your car to last forever because they want you to buy a new car. There are other things that they didn't ever intend for them to last forever. So we'll focus on the word obsolete. Let me just give you a few examples. Look at this first picture. Anybody remember this? That's a typewriter. I recognize that some of you still have a typewriter. I don't know why you still have one, but you do. Students, if you're under about 30, this is a typewriter. This was not a laptop. You couldn't search the Internet, couldn't check the weather. You couldn't tweet or check Facebook with this. You actually had to put paper in it. And if you made a mistake, they had whiteout. They had tape. They had things you could do, but I remember typing 20-page papers. And if you ever went back and proofread your paper and recognized there's a mistake on this, you had to figure out how to make that page work with the corrections because you didn't want to run into the next page and have to retype everything. So you'd, you'd change words, you'd do whatever you had to, so all you had to retype was that page. That, that's a typewriter. Check this next one out. That's a computer. You used to have computers with punch cards and computer rooms, whole sections of buildings that basically all of that information would now fit into your phone. That's a computer. Look at the next one. That's a washing machine. I know some of you are thinking I'm making this up. Anybody, anybody here ever use a washing machine like this for real? Okay. It hadn't been that long ago. That, that did not plug in, by the way. In fact, that was a fancy one. It had the little ringer right there with it. So this was like the uh, this was for people that had money. This was the deluxe model. I don't know what these sold for. Probably five dollars. I don't know. Anybody remember how much did you pay for one of these washing machines? I don't know, but you didn't have to have the Maytag guy come and fix it. I know that. Look at the next thing. This is the telephone. Anybody here ever use one of these? Not, not a telephone, but a telephone like this. Hung on the wall, you cranked it, you talked to Sarah on the other end and said, you know, get me Barney or whatever. And you spoke into a little microphone and you held this thing up. It was attached to the wall. Now, we didn't have one of these in my home, but the next picture we had, this is what I grew up with. This was in the kitchen. It was the only phone in the house. If you were in the bedroom and you hear the phone ringing, you had to run. And notice it had a rotary dial. It's a lot of fun. Now, what you would end up doing is, is taking that cord right there and you'd buy a new cord so you could walk all over the house. <laughs> but you were tethered, folks. You were attached. This was an umbilical cord to the rest of the world. In fact, some homes have what were called party lines. Anybody remember that? That was where the phone would ring a different way for you and then your neighbor may have the same line as you just rang a little differently. And if you got bored at night, you could kind of listen in on their conversations. The phone has evolved from the wooden thing that hung on the wall to this. And then it, then it, it got to this. Well, we've had pay phones. Anybody remember pay phones? 
We don't really have pay phones anymore. I guess you can still find them a few places, but they cost a fortune to use now. used to be a dime. At least the first one I remember was a dime, then it went to a quarter. All right. Then it got to where it cost you $14 to use a pay phone. You had to have a credit card to dial a 1-800 number. And then how many remember this? That's the bag phone. Okay. Some of you are going, what, what were we doing back then? Folks, this was modern technology right here. This was, you could actually carry this around with you. This was the first cell phone. That's what you had. You had this bag. It usually was in your car. But if you got out and wanted to talk, and it cost $45 a minute. I mean, it was expensive. I'm serious. I remember the first one of these. I think you got 30 free minutes a month. After that, you had to give up one of your children. It was ridiculous. Okay? So, what's the point of all that? We, we have seen things that have gone obsolete. Where we're getting to in this passage of Hebrews chapter 8 is something has gone obsolete. Something is no longer in use. It's not good anymore. It's been discarded for and been replaced by something better. And it was planned. That's why I came up with the term planned obsolescence. God, this was God's plan from the very beginning. You go back to Genesis and you see a cord, a thread, working its way all the way to the cross. And what has been replaced is the old covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham, but then he made the Mosaic covenant, the one with Moses on the mountain with the Ten Commandments and a bunch of other laws. That was a covenant that God made. But he told the people throughout the Old Testament, there's a new covenant coming. That's what we're going to focus on this morning. Let me read just the first few verses, beginning in verse 3 of chapter 8, for the first point, and that is, the old covenant was a shadow. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the, te- the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. So first of all, the old covenant was a shadow. The old covenant was good. The old covenant was from God. But it was only a shadow of what was to come. It says that every high priest was appointed. That's, that's true. High priest came out of the priestly tribe, the tribe of Levi. There were 12 tribes in the Old Testament. All the Israelis, Israelites, the nation of Israel, nation of Judah, were broken down into 12 tribes. One of them was the Levi tribe, or Levites, and they were the priests, and they had a function. The priest represented man before God. Just to give you kind of a parallel or distinction, the prophets represented God to man. They told men, this is what God says. But priests went before God to represent the people, to offer sacrifices, and there's two specific kinds of sacrifices they offered. They offered gifts, and sacrifices are two types of things they offered. Gifts and sacrifices. What's the difference? Gifts were offerings that could be food offerings. They could be wheat. They could be grain. They could be oil. They could be wine. They were offerings of dedication. They were offerings of thanksgiving. For example, we were, they were taught in the Old Testament that when your fields produced a harvest, the first part of that was called the first fruits, and you brought it to God. You sacrificed it to God. And so it was a dedication. You were dedicating your field to the glory of God and for God to bless your field and the produce, the harvest that year. And so there were gifts. 
Then there were sacrifices. Sacrifices were blood sacrifices. These were animals, truly, throughout the Old Testament. It didn't just happen one day a year, but the big day was Yom Kippur. This was the Day of Atonement. This is when the priest had to take a special bath, put on special clothes, had to offer a sacrifice for himself, and then he went into the Holy of Holies. And they offered the blood of an animal in the Holy of Holies to atone, to cover the sins of the people. One problem. Those sins were never truly forgotten because they were never truly completely forgiven because it was just a shadow. Sins were covered, but it was a shadow of what was coming. So every high priest offered gifts and sacrifices. And it's necessary that this high priest have something to offer. Now, we've already, we've already looked at this throughout the book of Hebrews so far, but let me just catch you up to date if you had not been here. The book of Hebrews was written by an author that was probably somewhere else writing to a, a Jewish, predominantly Jewish church in or around Rome. And what had happened in that church is some people had forsaken Judaism and fully committed themselves to Christ. They, they had become believers. They were Christians and they were facing persecution. There were other people in the church who had forsaken Judaism but hadn't yet jumped totally into the boat with Jesus. They hadn't come to faith yet in Christ. They were just in between, so to speak. And the, and the writer of Hebrews says a lot about those people and specifics about them, especially Hebrews chapter 6. But what we learn is Jesus is compared to the angels. He's compared to Moses. He's compared to Abraham. He's compared to the high priest. And we recognize that he is a high priest, not according to the earthly order, but according to the order of Melchizedek, who really came before Aaron, who was the real first priest or high priest. But, but Melchizedek was a king. He was also regarded as a priest. In fact, Abraham made offerings uh, to Melchizedek. But that kind of catches us up to date. So Jesus was a high priest, but he wasn't a high priest on earth. Why is that? Because he wasn't of the tribe of Levi. He didn't meet the qualifications to be a high priest on earth. And yet he did what high priests do. He offered a sacrifice. Here's the big difference. The high priest offered bulls or goats or rams. They slaughtered it. They sprinkled the blood on the Ark of the Covenant and it satisfied the wrath of God for that year. Yom Kippur, one day a year. Jesus didn't sacrifice a lamb or a bull or a goat. Who did He sacrifice? Himself. He was the sacrifice. He shed His blood on the cross. So Jesus Christ did that once and for all. He didn't have to come back next year and do it again. When Jesus Christ cried on the cross, it is finished. It wasn't just that his life was about over. It meant all of those hundreds of years of Old Testament sacrifices that pointed to this day, the day that Jesus Christ died on the cross. All of that is finished. Why? Because he has finally offered the sacrifice that they had been looking for, that had been pointed to throughout the whole Old Testament. And yet his work's not finished. It says he still ministers. So what is he doing? He's not offering sacrifices anymore, but he's still ministering as a priest for us in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. We looked at this last week. He, he constantly intercedes for us. He's our advocate with the Father. But he also does this, folks. Anytime we come to God with a thanksgiving or praise, we don't do that on our own. We do that through Jesus Christ. In fact, one of the neat things we looked at last week is this. You, know, you ever have times where you just don't even know how to pray? You know you need to pray, and maybe you're in a group, and I've done this before. Let's pray. And as soon as you close your eyes and bow your head, you think, I don't even know what to say. And yet there's a depth, there's a groaning within to speak to God. That's where the Holy Spirit steps in. That's where Jesus steps in. 
So the Bible says that Holy, the Holy Spirit takes our prayers that are groanings too deep for words and takes them to the Father. It also says that Jesus is our intermediary. He's one, He's an advocate with the Father. And so He takes our prayers and makes them before God to express to God what we need and what the intentions of our heart are. And so that's what God does. In fact, Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. That's what Jesus is doing for us right now. He's still ministering as a high priest. Now, if He was on earth, he would not be a priest. Why? Because he wasn't of the order of the tribe of Levi. But he's a heavenly priest. So the tribe of Levi pointed towards the perfect, which was Jesus, the heavenly high priest. The fact of the matter is we have served a copy. We've served a shadow. A copy, seriously, an exhibit or an imitation of something else. How much is a copy worth? Well, it was a copy of what, in fact, the Scripture goes on in this passage to say it's what God showed Abraham on the mountain. And God said, if you want to write down Exodus chapter 25, that's what this is referring to. God said, I want you to build a tabernacle, a place for me to dwell among men. But you're patterning it after a copy, a shadow of what's already in heaven. So the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God in heaven, is not some improved you know, they just worked on the earthly tabernacle. No, it's what was there to begin with. The earthly tabernacle is just a copy or a shadow. Now, if I go over here to the copy machine, out this door, there's a copy machine. If I happen to have a $100 bill, which I don't. Anybody want to give me one? If I made a copy of it, how much is that copy worth? Probably about 10 years in prison, okay? <laughs> if you try to pass that off somewhere. Copy's not worth much. But the copy on earth was worth a lot because God said, this is where I'm going to dwell with men. But keep in mind, it's only a copy. It's a shadow. How, how do we get a shadow? If you walk out today, it's going to be 11 o'clock. We walk out the door. Let's assume the sun's shining. You're standing there. There's going to be a shadow. Okay. How did the shadow get there? Was it there before you walked up? No. A shadow has to be a reflection of an object that truly exists. But we don't want the shadow. We want the real thing. And so what the tabernacle on earth was, the whole priestly system on earth was, it was a copy. It was the shadow of something that already existed in heaven. And, and God instituted it, but he was about to do away with it to bring in the true, uh, the real thing that he had intended from the very beginning. Moses was warned by God as he was about to erect the tabernacle. The point of the earthly tabernacle was for God to dwell among men. But now, according to Acts chapter 7, God doesn't dwell there anymore. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, the veil that kept people from going into the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom. It doesn't exist anymore. We'll talk about that later. But we now have direct access to God. Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 10 that we'll get to in a few weeks. Through Jesus Christ. In fact, in Acts it says that God doesn't dwell in tabernacles or in buildings made by human hands anymore. Now, we go to church sometime and call this the house of God. I'm okay with you calling it that, but that's not what it is. This is a place where the church gathers together. Where's the house of God now? Right here. We're the temple. The day you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, God steps into your life through the person of the Holy Spirit, and that is His dwelling place. He doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands anymore. He dwells within us. There's significance of that that we'll get to in a moment. But let me read the next passage. 
because the new covenant is better. Folks, this is good news. A new covenant has come and it's better. Let's look at verses 6 and follow, following. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. What's he talking about there? First of all, he has obtained a more, and I just, the, the three betters in this passage. He has obtained a more excellent ministry. He has acquired this surpassing function, this great ministry. I've already described it. What is he doing in heaven? The Bible says that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Why is he seated? He's seated because his work is finished. And yet he still acts as minister in heaven. He's our advocate with the Father. Write down 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. 1 John 2, verse 1 says, I've written these things to you so that you will not sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is that? Jesus. So he's obtained a better ministry. He's a mediator. What does a mediator do? A mediator is someone that represents two parties. It could be two individuals or it could be two groups or it could be a group and an individual. But a mediator goes between, represents both groups. So how is Jesus our mediator? Jesus is a mediator because he represents us before God. But he also represents God to us. So he's a mediator, a go-between. That's part of his function now. He's enacted this better covenant. He's has a more excellent ministry as a mediator. We also have a better covenant, literally stronger, more useful, profitable. The old covenant was external. The old covenant was made between God and Abraham, or it's really affected a nation. It's made between God and Moses, which was the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. And so it's really between God and a nation, or God and a people. The new covenant is personal. We'll get to that in a minute. But there's a big difference between the old and the new. But it's been enacted on better promises. I love that. God's covenant always involves promises. Men break promises. God never does. So it's enacted on better promises. If the first had been faultless, there'd have been no need for a second. How was the first one faultless? Now, don't misunderstand. The first one was not false. It was instituted by God. It was a good thing. But here's where the fault occurred. God kept his promise. Man did not keep his promise. And so because it was fault, had faults, God has instituted a new covenant. But folks, this was not a new decision in God's mind. Throughout the Old Testament, he had been pointing to this day that a new covenant was coming from the very beginning. And here's the, pro the problem. How did they miss this? The people that this writer is writing to are people who cannot accept Christ as Savior because he didn't meet the picture they had in their mind. Well, how did they get the picture in their mind? Well, they should have read the Old Testament. 330 times in the Old Testament, there's prophecy about the coming of Christ. It is mentioned, I'm going to have a new covenant. In fact, the majority of this scripture that I've just quoted for or just read for you is from uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, God says very specifically, there's a new covenant coming. These people should have known that. They had memorized portions, practically the whole Old Testament. They'd certainly studied it. You couldn't be a Jewish young man or young woman without having gone to school to learn the Old Testament. 
And yet they were more in love with the shadow and the copy than they were the real thing. If the first had been faultless, there'd be no occasion for the second. But because it's faultless, here's what God said. I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. New covenant. Something's about to happen that's fresh. Something's about to happen that had never happened before, but it's been God's plan all along. How do you and I get in on that? Well, we get in on that because as we become believers, we're born into the covenant. We become descendants of Abraham. When God said to Abraham, Abraham, you're going to have descendants that are going to be so numerous, go out and count the sand on the seashore. Or look up into the sky and count the stars. You, you can't count them. They're immeasurable, innumerable. And he was looking down through history, not just to the direct offsprings of Abraham, but to us who would one day be grafted into the family. The day you trust Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you become a descendant of Abraham. You become under this new covenant. Not like the old covenant. The old covenant with Abraham declared God's intentions to bless Abraham. Didn't really have a lot of conditions or demands. But then the covenant with Moses was the Ten Commandments. But folks, after that were hundreds of other laws throughout the Old Testament that had a lot of conditions and demands. And what God is saying is people didn't keep that. In fact, there's a a verse that some of you are going to struggle over, verse 9, when he says, they did not continue in my covenant. Literally, they didn't stay under the covenant that I established with them. They broke the covenant. And God said, I didn't care for them. That almost sounds like somebody offers you something to eat and you're like, I didn't care for that. (laughs) That's not what it's saying. It's not saying that God didn't care for them, but it literally means that God doesn't regard the covenant with them anymore because they've broken it. So God had to establish a new one. Not that He's disinterested in His people, but they've turned their back on the covenant. And then lastly, the new covenant is personal. Let me read the last few verses. Continuing in verse 10, which is still quoting from Jeremiah 31. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Let me unpack this in the next, just these last few minutes, because this is, this is good. This is strong. I will put my laws into their minds and their hearts. Where had he put the laws initially? Where were the Ten Commandments? They were written on stone tablets. They were passed down from generation. That was something that was written. The law has been written. It was on parchment. It was the first five books of the Bible or the books of the law. One time when I was in Israel, in Jerusalem, I'm walking in a very orthodox, conservative Jew with all of the clothing of a conservative Jew came up and was talking to some members of our group. And I was kind of overhearing. He really wasn't talking to me. He was talking to one of the ladies. And bottom line, it was her and her husband. Bottom line, he basically was saying, hey, he was recognizing I'm a Jew and you're Christians. But he was just basically saying, hey, start in Genesis. Read the Bible. Actually, he said, start with the Torah. Read the Torah. And when you come to a law, obey it. And the lady looked at me and said, I don't know about you. I'm not reading the Torah. What's the Torah? She thought it was some cult that was telling her to read the Torah. She said, you're going to read the Torah? She looked at me. You're going to read the Torah? I was like... Yeah, I've read it a bunch. It's, it's the first five books of the Bible. It's okay. But here's the difference. 
Those were things written on stone tablets. Those were things written with ink on a parchment. Where are they written now? They're written in our mind and in our heart. Big difference. I'm going to write them in their minds. The Holy Spirit will remind us of the Word of God. It's not just black words on a white page anymore. John chapter 14, verse 26. Listen to this. It says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. That's different than the Old old Covenant. The Old Covenant was written. You had to go find it and read it, or you had to have your parents teach it to you. This is the Holy Spirit is reminding us of it because He's resident in our life now as a child of God. I'll write them on your hearts. We needed a spiritual heart transplant or a spiritual operation. God's given us a new heart when we come to faith in Christ. The Old Covenant was external. Worship was external. It wasn't real. It was ritual. Big changes happen now through the new covenant. In fact, he says, you don't, you don't have to have somebody teach you. Why? Because all will know me. We'll be able to know God in a personal way. Big difference in knowing about God, Old Testament, and knowing God personally and intimately, New Testament. Let me give you an example. I'm a big golf fan. I grew up in Georgia. I used to go to the Masters. Used to, you could actually go to the Masters, practice rounds. You didn't have to do the lottery and get it every five or six years. But every year we used to go. I remember one particular practice round, it started raining. So on the 11th hole down there near the beginning of Amen Corner, we got under a television stand to keep, stay out of the rain. And next thing I know, a guy walks under with us. It was Jack Nicholas, my childhood hero. And so the friend that was with me is thinking, that's your hero. That's all you ever talk about is Jack Nicholas. Why aren't you talking to him? Well, I'm not talking to him because I don't know him. I knew a lot about him. I knew what his birthday was. I knew what his kids' names were. I knew what his wife's name was. I knew that he was colorblind. I knew how many majors. I knew all this stuff. But if I said, hey, Jack, remember me? What would he have said? I'd rather not shake your hand right now. You know? Okay? And all these other people were just peppering him with stupid questions. How many golf balls do you use around? All this kind of stuff. I'm just sitting there in awe. But I don't know him. I just knew about him. Also at Augusta, over on the practice range a few years later, I'm standing there, and we're watching people hit golf balls. And, you know, you can typically tell who the golfer is because you recognize them from television, or you can read their name on the bag, or you can read their caddy's name on the back of his outfit. But there's one guy with a straw hat on, and everybody said, who is that, Robert? And I said, I don't know. I, I recognize him. I just could not think of his name. And in front of me was this little kid that kept looking up. He was annoying us. Like he's listening in on our conversation. And I kept saying, I don't know. I don't know who that is. And finally, the little kid said, it's Dan Forsman. As the kid turned around a little bit more, I noticed he had a name tag on. And I can't remember his first name, but his last name was Forsman. That was his daddy out there. He was probably a little perturbed at us that we didn't know his father. Now, if he had walked through the gallery ropes and went up and said, Hey, Dad, what would have happened? His dad would have picked him up in his arms and hugged him. He could walk with him. If I had done that, what would have happened? There would have been armed guards come out. And escorted me, maybe to jail, but certainly off the property. Don't ever come back again. Your privileges have been revoked. Why? Because I didn't know Dan Forsman. But that was his son. Folks, in a spiritual sense, that's what happens when I come to faith in Christ. I don't just know about God anymore. I know God intimately and personally. Do I know everything there is to know about God? No. Will I, will I grow in my knowledge of God? Yes. But I have a relationship with Him right then. Personal and intimate. Huge difference between Old Covenant and New Covenant. And God says, they'll know me the least to the greatest. I will be merciful 
to them. Listen, even the old covenant was based on God's mercy. But the new covenant is all about God's mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. You don't go up in front of the judge and say, I demand justice, because what would justice be? Death. (laughs) Why? Because the Bible says we've all sinned. And the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. So God gives us mercy, not what we deserve. He also gives us grace, which is something He gives us that we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you didn't deserve. And I will remember their sins no more. Let that one soak in a minute. In the Old Testament, sins were never truly, totally forgotten because they were never truly, totally forgiven. There was a covering for sin. But when God says, I will remember their sins no more, what a great statement. Several times in the New Testament, I will remember their sins no more. Does it mean God forgot? No. God's all-knowing. So He can't forget anything until He chooses to. And so when God says, I remember that no more, it's, it's how God separates sin from us. In the Old Testament, they separated sin by praying it over the head of a goat. It was called a scapegoat. And somebody had the audacious duty of taking that goat out away from the camp and making sure it never came back. Because the worst thing that could happen, if that was your job, go lose this goat. <laughs> and the next morning you're hearing, man. Yeah. What, what basically just happened is the sins of the people that were prayed over the head of that goat just came back. Well, here's the good news. We're not praying over the head of a goat. God is saying, I choose to remember your sins no more. You and I struggle with that because we can't forget. But God says, I choose to remember it no more. So how should we live our life? Folks, when you've been forgiven, quit bringing it back up. Quit dwelling there. Quit wallowing in it. Quit playing with it. Understand you have been forgiven. Your sin's been separated as far as the east is from the west. He remembers it no more. And then last, he says, this old covenant has become obsolete because there's a new covenant. Whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. In fact, the word he uses for disappear is the word he uses in James for vapor. It means that. It means you walk out on a cold morning. It's probably not going to happen in the next few weeks. You walk out on a cold morning and go, what is that? That vapor. How long does it last? Not long. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying, it's not long before that old covenant is going to disappear. What did he mean? Well, about five years later, the emperor Titus was going to come and sack Jerusalem. He was going to destroy the temple. The sacrifice was ended. There wasn't a place for it anymore. There really wasn't a need for it. Now, unfortunately, Jews who haven't come to faith in Christ are still waiting, longing for the temple to be rebuilt so that they can offer sacrifices again. Folks, we don't need to do that. Why? Because Jesus was the sacrifice once and for all. So what are the implications? Let me close just with a few thoughts. The implications of the new covenant is this. God now lives within in the person of the Holy Spirit. You now have the power to live the Christian life. Listen, the old covenant was just pointing to the fact that you, you couldn't keep the law. You didn't have the power to keep the law. The new covenant is about relationship. And the Holy Spirit empowers you to live what God's told you to live. You have a relationship with God. God said, I'll be their God and they will be my people. God's not ashamed to be called your God. Don't be ashamed to be called His child. You can know God personally and intimately even as you are known. Fourth, you can experience true forgiveness. Literally, separation from sin. 
And then the last, you can experience real worship, not ritual. Folks, it's awesome to worship a God that you know. Instead of just singing words off a screen and expressing the desires, the thoughts, the intentions of your heart. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Father, thank you for the new covenant. God, we recognize the old covenant was good, but it wasn't perfect. It wasn't the best. It pointed to something real. It was just a shadow and a, co- and a copy. But Lord, thank you that we're under a new covenant that involves a relationship with Jesus Christ. God, I pray that every heart that hears this message would want that and not the shadow. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.